and uh, do turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians and chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, as we continue in our series of uh, sermons on celebrating the unsearchable riches of Christ. Celebrating the unsearchable riches of Christ. We are currently in this one long sentence of the Apostle Paul. Probably the longest sentence in the whole Bible. From Ephesians 1 verse 3 all the way to Ephesians 1 verse 14. In the English translation, it's been broken down into a number of sentences, but in the original Greek, the Apostle Paul was just going on and on and on celebrating the unsearchable riches of Christ. We have noted that this section is in three sections. The first deals with the work of the Father, which we notice in verse 3 down to verse 6. And then we have the work of the Son, which is from verse 7 all the way down to verse 12. And then finally the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation in verse 13 down to verse 14. So it's a, a compendium of the work of the Trinity in saving us from our sins. We have dealt with the Father already. We are now in the context of Jesus the Son and what he does in saving us. We'll just read verse 7 and then quickly delve into its contents. Verse 7 says, In him, referring to Jesus, who is referred to earlier as the Beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Last week, as we began to look at the work of the Son, we largely concentrated on that which he does in the work of redemption. So we cleared redemption. And what we said about redemption is primarily that it refers to buying back that which is lost, legally lost. And um, it's to do with our relationship with God, our, our position of righteousness before God. It was lost by our four parents, Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God. And indeed, even as we come into this world, we, we just augment that loss by our sin. We shall be seeing a little bit more about that. And we went on to see that Jesus dying on the cross, he was in fact standing there in our place. He paid our debt so that we could then receive title to eternal life. And that is what redemption is. That is what was achieved. We went on finally to say that the proof of it is his resurrection, his um, coming back from the dead. We mentioned the fact that if you have lost 
your property to the bank by virtue of a loan that you are paying back, the final evidence that you have totally paid is when the title deeds are given back to you and you take them home and you show your spouse. There we are. We finished the payment. Let us celebrate. So really, that is what we learned last time, the redemption. It's the, the greatest news in the entire universe. Well, today, we move on then to consider the most vital fruit of that redemption, that which obscures everything else, and it is the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins. And uh, it is there in our text, in him we have redemption through his blood, that is the payment made, and then we are told the forgiveness of our trespasses. That little phrase, the forgiveness of sin, or of our sins, carries a world on its shoulders. It's just a few words. But if, if, if you've ever come into genuine conviction of sin by the Spirit of God, then you know how much this phrase meant to you. You would have gladly sold all your earthly possessions to simply receive this, the forgiveness of sins. I want us to try and capture this by reading a parable of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, in Luke and chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. So basically what I'll be doing is going from this story back to uh, Ephesians 1, and then back to this story, back to Ephesians 1, back to this story, primarily because I want us to capture something of its reality. The forgiveness of sins. The Lord Jesus Christ in Luke and chapter 18, verse 19 says, we're given the background there, sorry, verse 9, the background. He, referring to Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, I suppose it would have gone on and on and on. But verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, brethren, the greatest need of the entire human race, that number one need is the forgiveness of sins by the ultimate judge of the universe, God himself. And it is well captured by the tax collector in his sense of unworthiness and contrition and plea. First of all, his sense of unworthiness is captured by this phrase that um, in verse 13, we are told the, that the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. You see this fairly often when a child has done something wrong and they, they are now coming to report themselves. You, you don't even need to be told that what you're about to hear is an apology. The, the child has the hands sort of together almost in a form of prayer and, and, and looking down, failing to look at you and ensuring that there is the safety margin between yourself and that child. That's what we are seeing in the tax collector here. An absolute failure to, to look up. Why? Because of a sense of shame. Absolute shame. This is what I have done. I'm unworthy to, to relate to this God. And then there is the contrition that is captured again there in the words, but beat his breast. Beating his breast was a sign of real deep regret for what he had done. And then the plea, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, from the time of the fall that took place in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, we are all born sinners. We come into this world already deserving the wrath of God. We come into this world already deserving hell at the hands of this God. And then we are also born with a depraved nature, a, a corrupt nature, a nature that is terribly self-centered at the expense of everybody else. That's the way that we come into this world. And all we do from our birth onwards is to sin against God, sin against one another, sin against God, and sin against one another. Thankfully, God has put within all of us a, a, a conscience, a conscience that enables us to know when we have done wrong. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans and chapter 2 puts it this way, Romans 2 and verse 15. He puts it this way, 
They show, and he's referring to Gentiles. Um, by Gentiles, he means those that God did not give the law as it is given in the Old Testament. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The point he's making there is that even without the written law of God, what God has done is that he has put in us a compass that is always pointing north. In other words, always pointing in the direction of holiness, always pointing in the direction of righteousness. We know when we are sinning. And even those individuals who've seared the conscience, in other words, they've tried to tie it, to point the compass, that is, to point in the wrong direction. They sense that there's something in them that is still pulling, pulling, pulling in order to point north. They know it. And that's one reason why they are constantly bitter. We often joke about atheists, don't we? That there are people who believe that God does not exist and they hate him. You can see the contradiction there. They will tell you he doesn't exist. And then they hate him. You can't miss the, the militants that is there. In other words, if he was in front of them, they would stab him to death. And that's one reason why they hate Christianity. They hate religion altogether. They'll find every reason why it, it is the worst thing on the planet. Well, the truth is, they are fighting something in themselves, their own conscience, that tells them, you've sinned, you've sinned, and you are in serious trouble with God. He has prepared a hell where all sinners must finally be. And friends, this is not a philosophical point. And that is the reason why there is no reason for us to try and enter into arguments with philosophers and atheists and so on and so forth. The, the, the proof of God's existence is staring everybody in the face on the outside and the conscience within speaks a thousand times over that there is a God with whom we have to do and because of sin, we are in trouble. And this is what was agonizingly painful to this man in Luke and chapter 18. It was to recognize that there is a God with whom I have to do and I have sinned against him. I've sinned against him. I'm in serious trouble. I'm unworthy of being associated with him in any way. I feel it in my soul. And the most that I can do is simply plead and plead and plead for mercy. If you've been there where this man is, 
then you know the absolute necessity of divine forgiveness. The absolute necessity. You've been there on your knees, perhaps alone in your own bedroom, and pleading with God. You've thrown away your food. You've lost appetite for food. You failed to sleep. You failed to work. You failed to do anything. You've closed yourself in and basically saying, forgive or else I completely perish. Well, friends, the greatest error of the human race is to think that religion without redemption can bring me forgiveness. Religion without redemption can bring me forgiveness. And again, it is best captured here by the Pharisees. So again, let's quickly go back to that story. Acts and chapter, rather Luke and chapter 18. First of all, it is the man's sense of pride. His, his sense of, uh, um, you know, I'm better than him. I'm better than her. You can't miss it from the way it is put. The Pharisee standing by himself. Some versions speak in terms of speaking about himself or talking to himself. Ultimately, it is the himself that is captured there. That's the emphasis. It's all about himself. Whether it's standing by himself or speaking about himself or speaking to himself, ultimately, that is the pride that is being spoken about there. And then also the way in which he weighs sin. When he goes on to say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, in other words, defrauders, unjust, treating other people wrongly, terribly. And then he also says, adulterers, those who are sexually immoral. He's saying, Lord, I'm not like that. Praise the Lord. Now, if we were to ask him, but aren't you a sinner? I would say, yeah, yeah, but, you know, small sins, you know, small ones. That's the error of human beings. To judge God as one who overlooks some sins and then is mindful of big sins. And then, of course, he compares himself with uh, the tax collector as well, when he says, oh, even like this tax collector, this tax collector, look at him. That one, yes, is, is a big sinner. Not me. And again, that's the era of religion that has not factored in redemption. It is always this comparison. At least I'm better than a serial killer. At least I'm better than the person who robs banks. At least I'm better than my cousin who's a typical prostitute. At least I'm better, and so on and so forth. And then 
what is this better? It is the religious achievements. Look at him. Look at him. He says that I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It's all about me, me, and me, and how committed I am to my religious activities. Well, at the end of this parable, Jesus says this man goes home unforgiven. He goes home still accounted as a sinner deserving hell, despite the fact that he has all these credentials. Why? Well, the reason is quite simple. God is absolutely holy and he's absolutely just. I repeat, absolutely, 100%. And therefore, there is no escaping unless there is an absolute basis by which God can forgive us. The forgiveness of sins went right past him, right past him, despite all these credentials. Well, what about the tax collector? How come he went home to borrow the words of Jesus, not just forgiven, but justified? Let's read verse 14 there. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Not just forgiven, but declared righteous. Declared righteous. Here's a person who is sinful and is aware of it, painfully aware of it. And yet he goes home declared by God that he has not sinned. He's lived a righteous life. You say, how? The answer lies in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. It lies in those words. The temple. The temple was not a church. Now, the equivalent of a church was the synagogue. That's the equivalent. Church worship in the New Testament was based on synagogue worship that took place both in the New Testament and in the intertestamental period. If you were in the temple, you would see curtains like this. And beyond those curtains, only one human being goes once a year. And he can only go through that place with the blood of a slain bull. Following absolutely the laws of God. 
Only then can he go in with the sacrifice of atonement. Prior to that curtain, you will see an altar where a number of priests are collecting bloody sacrifices from individuals conscious of their own sin. And what the priests would do would be to slit the throat of those animals that are, that are brought and the blood would be poured into a bowl. And then that blood would be taken by the priest and with the equivalent of a brush, a hyssop, they would be sprinkling that blood upon the altar. And the worshippers who brought that animal would be saying, there go I, but for the grace of God. That's what I deserve. And a man like this would be seeing those bloody sacrifices and saying, God, accept that animal in my place. That that death is what I deserve. Accept it. That I might instead be given life freely. Not because I deserve it. But because you instituted in your own law a substitute. A sacrificial substitute. And that is what I am putting my trust in. My entire trust in. That there go I, but for the grace of God. What is that? Redemption. Redemption. Back to our text. In him, that is in the beloved, we have redemption through his blood. Friends, what was happening in the altar, rather in the temple, was nothing but a shadow. It was a picture pointing to the reality. The reality that took place at Calvary on that mount called Golgotha, the hill called Golgotha, where the Son of God died. He was paying the price for our sin. He was being punished in our place. He was drinking in our hell. Because all our sins were transferred onto his shoulders so that God could treat him as though he is the one who had committed all those atrocious sins that we have committed. Until having paid it all, he was able to say, it is finished. And he breathed his last and was no more. He died. We have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The Lord Jesus Christ put it this way in Matthew and chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, just one verse there. Matthew 20, 
and verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and here it is, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his very life as a payment to free many, to free many from condemnation. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and chapter 5, puts it this way. Revelation and chapter 5. Verse 9. Revelation 5 and verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, referring to Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, you paid to buy back people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, this man was able to go home justified because he didn't come there bringing in himself. This is what I've done. Look at what I have achieved. Compared to those people, surely I deserve this and I... No, 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 no. He went in owning only one thing. I'm a sinner who deserves to die. That's all. I'm a sinner who deserves to die. What I'm asking for is mercy. It's, it's sympathy. My sin is weighing me down. It's sympathy from a holy God. That's what I'm asking for. Have mercy on me. Friends, it's this great exchange. I mentioned last week the way the hymn writer captures it. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. That's it. That's what we base all our trust in. Guilty, vile, and wicked I am. And we have in this great God a spotless lamb of God. He makes full atonement, and therefore I can rejoice. Which leads me to my last point. I spoke about, first of all, the greatest need of the human race. I spoke about the greatest error of the human race. And now I speak about the greatest news for the human race. And it is a free forgiveness from God in Christ. A free forgiveness from God in Christ. It was well captured in the words of our Lord Jesus at the end of his parable. This man went to his house justified. 
justified. He went to his house, not just forgiven. Yes, it's forgiveness we desperately need. But God gives to us a thousand times more in being declared righteous. Never forget this link that we have in our text. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. All that we captured that. It stands between us and the glorious assurance of forgiveness and pardon. You go to anybody in any religion and ask them this question. As devout as they might be, say to them, if you died today, would God accept you in heaven? Here will be their answer. I hope so. Why do you hope so? Well, I've been very sincere. I've done my best. I've followed my parents' religion, etc., etc. I, I, I. Go to a real Christian and ask the question, if you die today, will you go to heaven? The answer will not be I hope so. It will be yes. Ah, but how can you be so definite? I mean, have you lived a perfect life? No, no, no. My sins have all been paid for. All of them. By the death of my Redeemer, Jesus Christ. God is righteous. He will not exact two payments for the same sin. He cannot. He is righteous. He is a just judge. My sins have been utterly paid for. I wonder whether, as you sit there, you have made that connection. Absolute connection. The redemption in his blood the forgiveness of sins. The redemption in his blood, the forgiveness of sins. It's the only basis of my forgiveness of sins, the redemption in his blood. And it took place at the center stage of history outside Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha. Notice this connection again in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians and chapter 1. We read in verse 13. Colossians 1 and verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. And then he says this in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, tying the two together. 
And the thing I want you to notice, especially there, is this transfer from one kingdom to the other, delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, in the beloved. And therefore he treats us, not on the basis of our sins, but on the basis of him whom he loves, the darling of God, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. That's the basis on which he relates to us. Friends, this is the best news in the universe. The best news. Every so often, I ask individuals, this question, in fact, yesterday in the afternoon, uh, in a witnessing context, I did exactly the same. I spoke to a guy and in due season discovered, I think he's saved. And then I put the last test before him. I said, okay, let's suppose you sin. And just before you confess that sin, you die. Where will you go? And I was expecting him to take rather long and finally say, well, too bad, hell. But no, he said, I would go to heaven. I said, why? Because my Savior died even for that sin. And I remember saying to him, we're baptizing tomorrow, but just that you needed to go through baptismal class. Otherwise, you are ripe for baptism. That's trust. It's been paid for. We have redemption. Jesus Christ went to the cross and finally said, it is finished. Paid it all. Signed and sealed by my own blood. And therefore, when people come to him in repentance and faith, they are freely and fully pardoned. Oh, friends, this is what secures for us a place in heaven. This is what secures for us our glorification. It is what has transpired on the cross. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Have you been there? Where the tax collector was? Have you been there? Where you come with the entire load of guilt upon your soul? Have you been there when, like I said, you were willing to sell everything that you ever owned to receive but a drop of, of God's sympathy and mercy, of God's forgiveness? Have you been there when you've almost drowned yourself in your own tears? Have you been there when you have hated yourself and hated the devil and hated the world? 
Because you've sinned against the living God. Have you been there when the bitterness of your own soul would have almost crushed you? Have you been there when your sense of unworthiness before Almighty God has caused you to be full of shame? Shame and shame. Have you been there? Then listen to these words. In him we have been redeemed. In him we have redemption through his blood. In him we have the forgiveness of sins. Completely. And a declaration, a certificate that says from the Supreme Court of Heaven, justified, justified, righteous in my sight. What he wants us to do, each one of us, with this good news, is to simply come to Christ and receive it freely and own it in genuine repentance. And that's what I invite you to do even today. Not by coming to the front, but by being in that same seat, but crying to the Lord for his full and free Free, free pardon because it's purchased in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, cry to him who has redeemed by his blood. Cry to him for that free forgiveness of sins that it might change your entire life from this day onwards as you celebrate the unsearchable riches of Christ. Amen.